Hi there, and welcome once again to uh, <coughs> excuse me, a light into my path broadcast. I am your host Howard Sides, and uh, we are currently studying the Book of Revelation, and we're going to be here for a while. So <laughs> if you're interested in it, oh, uh, you can buckle down. Our Sunday school class has been uh, well for uh, COVID stopped everything, but uh, we had been, I guess, studying it for about five and a half years. So, okay, it's not going to be anything short. Uh, I could give you some pointers and get you through it in about 30 minutes. Well, maybe not 30 minutes, but uh, we're, we're just breaking it down. We're taking our time, and we're, like I said in the last episode, if you were with us, um, but we're just taking everything we can out of it so that we don't miss anything. And, and I'm sure there's more to it. I'm not saying I can get everything, but... Uh, just what I, I see, what I've read about, what I've pulled out of other people's thoughts, and, and that sort of thing. But All right, we're <clears throat> coming to, the uh, uh, hopefully, the conclusion of chapter 1, or verses 19 through 20, uh, which are the last two, so hopefully we can fit that in, in this episode. Uh, so we'll start reading there, verse 19. It says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Okay, so uh, we've talked about an age of individual witness in verse 9. And then there was the age of instinctive worship in verses 10 through 18. And now we're getting into the age of intelligent waiting, verses 19 through 20. The age of intelligent waiting. Uh, in that, we'll see certain times involved, verse 19, and then certain truths involved in verse 20. So certain times involved in 19, certain truths involved in verse 20. All right, so within the certain times, uh, look at what he says. First of all, what is seen? He said, the things which thou hast seen. Jesus is referring to the things of chapter 1, not things which John saw while Christ was in the flesh. Okay, so he's referring to the things of chapter 1 that he saw. Also, what is said, the things which are. This is referring to the things written in chapters 2 and 3 uh, to the seven churches, as well as the church ages, uh, <clears throat> their corresponding time period. Uh, relates to, and we'll get into that when, when we start chapter 2. We'll talk about the the, the seven churches there. Uh, also, thirdly, what is shown? The things which shall be hereafter. This refers to the things written from chapter 4 to the end of the book. Okay. Now, uh, verse 20 represents certain truths involved. In those truths, we're going to see a mystery, uh, a messenger, the method and the mapping. So the mystery, the messenger, the method, and the mapping. All right. First thing, the mystery. The Greek word mystery. And he says there, the mystery of the seven stars. The Greek word uh, mysterion means something which is meaningless to the outsider, but meaningful to the one who possesses the key. And that's, that's an address from William Barclay, an address, a definition from William Barclay himself. Uh, he says that the Greek word mysterion means something which is meaningless to the outsider, but meaningful to the one who possesses the key. And in the pulpit commentary, 
Uh, it says, and I quote, a mystery is the opposite of a revealed truth. It is a sacred truth kept secret, the inner meaning of something which is perceived but not generally understood. So it's not necessarily something that uh, is not to be released. It, it's something not being released at that time or to a certain select group. In other words, to everyone. It's not being revealed yet. That, that's the mystery that it's talking about. Uh, now notice the messenger. The seven stars are symbolic of the angels of the seven churches. Now the Greek word for angel is angelos. A-N-G-E-L-O-S. Angelos. Which means to bring tidings. A messenger. Especially an angel. By implication, a pastor. So therein, we see that it could actually be uh, referring to the pastors of the church, or or it could be actual angels. We just don't know. Um, it just tells us that it is an angel. Now, there are two main thoughts as to who exactly these angels are. Now, these angels were the pastors in charge of each church, like we just said. It's thought that the pastors had met with John, or at the least he is directing his letters to each of them. Now, scripture matching this reference is found in Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word messenger here is angelos. So it matches that word there. Now the argument against this thought is that this would be the only time in the New Testament that angelos would be used to describe a human messenger. Okay? So... Is it the one time or is it talking about an actual angel? So uh, the next thought, these angels were specific guardian angels in charge of these churches. And, and we know angels are protective creatures. God created angels uh, for specific tasks. And I've got a book on angels and <laughs> quite literally it's, it's, um, I was trying to look for it myself, but um, th th there's like this huge, uh, you think of like an army, you know, there's there's the, the general, uh, there's the brigade commanders, the battalion commanders, there's the company commanders, the platoon commanders, the squad commanders, on and on and on and on down. And depending on the size of the army, uh, you're talking thousands upon thousands, uh, really. And when you get into the angels, there are ranks there. And, and it goes into hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of names. And we only know a certain few names. I don't know where all these other names come from that they got in this angel book. Uh, I can't dispute it. I don't have the proof to dispute it. But it is curious to where, no, where they got all them names from. And I don't know. Uh, but anyway. All right. So these angels were specific guardian angels in charge of the church. Now, in, in Daniel chapter 10, we are told of specific angels in charge of specific nations. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 tells us the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that is a, a guardian angel, by the way, which is like a demon. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me. And then later on in verse 20, I return to fight with the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia shall come. That was another angel slash demon. These were not good guys. These were the bad guys. 
Verse 21, but Michael, your prince, your prince. So that right there tells you that the prince meant a guardian angel. Uh, the New Testament tells the people and their guardian angels, Matthew 18, verse 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Acts chapter 12, verse 15. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. Now, in, these in this case, these guardian angels are being rebuked for the actions in their churches. Um, the historian Origen believed that this was uh, the case and suggested that the guardian angel was like a tutor to a child. When the child went wrong, the tutor was blamed. In this case, if the church went wrong, God in his mercy blamed the angel in charge. Now, the problem with this thought is that although the angel is addressed in each letter, without mistake, it is the members of each church body being specifically spoken to. Now, the same goes for the preacher's idea, too. So, you see how the argument could go either way. I, I personally think that it includes both. Um, it is written to the congregation, it is written to the pastor, and it is written to the angel in charge of the church. Why, why not use Angelos to describe both of them? I mean, he's directing it to everyone involved in the church. And I think that would be all of them. All right, so uh, the method. The seven lampstands are symbols of the seven churches. A great, a great title of a Christian is that we are to be the examples of Christ to unbelievers. A witness to unbelievers. Um, Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do <clears throat> excuse me, men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So you see that the example that a Christian is supposed to be is, is to a believer, uh, an unbeliever, but also we're to be witnesses to believers as well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless and sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. In both examples, the Christian is spoken of as being the light of the world. Now, many times we refer to the light of the world uh, as being Christ himself. He's saying that, that we are to be the light of the world. But the light is shining the truth. It's not in, in the light itself. The source of the light is within us. Okay, for us to be the light, we have to let the Holy Spirit shine through us. So he is, in essence, the light of the world, but we're shining the light. <clears throat> okay? An old uh, Greek com uh, commentator had this to say, The churches are called not the light itself, but the lampstand on which the light is set. It is not the churches themselves which produce the light, 
The giver of light is Jesus Christ, and the churches are only the vessels within which the light shines. The Christian's light is always a borrowed light. That's a very good point. <laughs> All right, so uh, the mapping. And, and this is uh, referring to a phrase called as above, so below. As above, so below. Now, this is an ancient motto derived from the writings of Hermes uh, Trismegistus. Yes, <laughs> I'll spell it. Hermes, H-E-R-M-E-S, Trismegistus, T-R-I-S, M-E-G, I-S-T-U-S, Hermes Trismegistus called Hermeticism. How about that, okay? Hermeticism. <laughs> that suggests the heavens are reflected in the earth below, kind of like a mirror. Some believe the mention of the seven stars is in reference to the star cluster known as the Pleiades. Pleiades is a Greek word. Uh, in Greek mythology, the stars are the seven daughters of Atlas placed among the stars to hide them from Orion. One the lost Pleiad hides from view either from grief or shame. And it, it, the fascinating thing about the Pleiades, it, it's a group of seven stars has always been referred to as a group of seven stars. And if I'm not mistaken, even through a telescope, uh, it's not until you really get to the very powerful magnification that you can see the seventh star. All you can visibly see is the six. So how in the world they knew there were seven that's one of those ancient mysteries you just don't know. How did they know? <laughs> How did they know? Now, the Pleiades, as a constellation, are mentioned in three places in Scripture. Job chapter 9, verse 9, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Again, in Job chapter 38, verse 31, Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? And finally, in the book of Amos, chapter 5 and verse 8, Seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, in referring to what I was talking about, some of those things being uh, hard to explain uh, without seeing those seven stars, uh, scriptureTruth.com uh, is a website that I like to use in studying the Bible. It, it, you can access, man, I think it's, whew, it's like over 50 different commentaries. And you can do it verse by verse. You can pull up one verse and see everybody's comments on that verse. Uh, uh, it's, it's a great little program. So if you're looking for a good study tool, there's there it is, scripturetruth.com. <clears throat> now, in, on scripturetruth.com, not in, but on, uh, it, it's talking about the Pleiades, and it says this, and I quote, The beautiful group of stars known as the Pleiades is mentioned three times in Scripture, which we talked about, Job 9, 9, 38, 31, and Amos 5, 8. Explain their origin, stating that the Creator stretches out the heavens and is the master of the Pleiades. Now, in Job 38, 31, further declares that only the Lord can bind the beautiful Pleiades and bring them forth in their season. 
These stars are indeed gravitationally bound together in a cluster. They appear in the November skies and are located above Orion's left shoulder, where six icy blue stars can be seen in the shape of a little dipper smaller than the moon. Binoculars reveal dozens of additional stars in the Pleiades group. The stars are 400 light years away, but are actually near neighbors of Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, um, in their commentary on the Old Testament, uh, Delich and Kiel have this to say, and I quote, If a star map is superimposed over the Earth with the pole star, being the North Star, Polaris, placed over the terrestrial North Pole, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a celestial clock making one revolution daily. The noon point of that map, like Greenwich, is the Great Pyramid of Giza. Thousands of years ago, Egypt was known as the land of Kim, K-H-E-M, Kim. The Kima were a group of seven major stars in the constellation of Taurus, known today as the Pleiades. If the map is placed with the Kima over the land of Kim, Egypt specifically, directly over the apex of the Great Pyramid, then Taurus falls over the Taurus Mountains of southern Turkey, Ursa Major, the Great Bear, rambles over Russia, the head of Draco, the dragon, coils up over China, Orion the warrior over Iran and Iraq, Ares the ram over Rome, and Capricorn, identified with the god Pan, falls over Panama, Panuco, and Maya Pan, the old name of the Yucatan. Aquila the eagle spans the United States. The analogies are obvious and quite impressive. This is one of the clearest examples of the law of as above, so below. So that's what they're talking about. Everything on earth is a mirror of what you see in heaven. And by taking this star map, and uh, according to Delich and Kiel, if you place it over the earth, if you take the earth and flatten it out, and you put it over that earth with uh, the north pole at the uh, north star, and then you put uh, the, the noon point of that map, the midpoint at the Great Pyramid of Giza, all those constellations come out and form the very uh, countries that are represented by these animals. Very strange, isn't it? Okay, uh, now, uh, that covers verses 19 uh, and 20. But there's one final thought here, and it's called the Age of Inclusive Welcome. An age of inclusive welcome. And and that ties in with it all the way over in the book, at the last of the book of uh, Revelation in chapter 21. Uh, if you want to flip over there and find that. An age of inclusive welcome. Chapter 21, verse 3 and 4. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That is an as above, so below of almost exactly what the Old Testament said. When he told Moses that he wanted him to build that uh, tabernacle then, that this is exactly what he said. All right, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. 
That tells you right there there's going to be crying in heaven. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So at least up to that moment, there certainly will be some crying. I'll hear all them songs about there'll be no tears in heaven. Well, it won't be after that point, but up to then, there will be. So what we see here is, uh, first of all, an age of individual witness. Uh, this represents the beginning stage of the relationship between God and man when men like Seth, Enoch, and Noah base their faith on a singular personal relationship with God without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second stage is the age of instinctive worship. The age of instinctive worship. This represents the second stage of the relationship between God and man when God acted upon the human race to select a peculiar people that he spoke to with prophets, signs, and wonders to initiate a response of worship all for the purpose that I may dwell among them. And that was represented in the trumpet, the golden candlesticks, the son of man, the seven stars, all of that. And then finally, there's the age of intelligent waiting. The age of intelligent waiting. Uh, and these, what I'm talking about here in these ages, uh, the age of individual witness, if you remember, that goes back to verse 9. John, I am your brother and companion in trial. And then the age of instinctive worship covers uh, verses 10 through 18. And then the age of intelligent waiting is verses 19 through 20. Is what I'm talking about there, okay? Uh, and it represents the third stage of the relationship between God and man, where man has received the gospel from his son, and men and men and we are told. Okay, I must have wrote that wrong. Let's see. Represents the third stage of the relationship between God and man, where man has received the gospel from his son, and we are told. Okay. And we are told to spread the word to others while we wait for Jesus Christ to return in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Write the things which thou hast seen, which are and which shall be. Okay, so there's the three ages uh, represented there. Now, we will be married into the family and adopted into the family in the end of times. And that represents two different ideas. The marriage represents the relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the adoption represents the relationship with God the Father. And, and there's verses that uh, talk about that. Jesus Christ talks about coming back for his bride. And God the Father talks about, you know, the adoption, son, being sons adopted unto the uh, Father. Now, William MacDonald in his book, in the book of uh, a Commentary on Revelation, says this. And I quote, Combining all these thoughts, we see Christ in all his perfections as supremely qualified to judge the seven churches. Later in the book, he will judge his foes, but judgment must begin at the house of God, 1 Peter 4, 17. Note, however, that it is a different kind of judgment in each case. The churches are judged with the purpose of purification and reward, the world with the purpose of punishment. Okay, so that covers the study of chapter 1, and I hope you enjoyed that. We'll pick up um, chapter 2 in the next episode and that's where we start uh talking about the seven churches and breaking down the, the messages to each of the seven churches and so we'll look uh forward to that okay now thank you for joining me for this and, and i hope you have a great day and um again i tell you to to just take this stuff 
and, and study it on your own. Uh, you will get far more out of it when you study it your own. You, you, there's a level of confidence uh, that comes from when God speaks to you. Verse, verse, I know he can speak through others, but uh, when you meditate on it yourself, God will show you things uh, that he didn't show me, that he doesn't show your pastor, that he doesn't show your Sunday school teacher, whoever it may be. Uh, God loves to speak to you individually. That's what this is all about. He wants an individual relationship with each and every one of us. He's never too busy to talk to you. It's usually the other way around. We're always too busy to talk to him. So give him a chance and let him speak to you. And I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. Okay? All right. So have a great day. And may God bless you uh, through your day. Thank you for listening.